0: Some of you know that when I was in Chicago, I used to take a monthly retreat day at a Benedictine monastery. It was called Monastery of the Holy Cross, and there was a small order of brothers there who would actually sing the hours throughout the day. It was really lovely. And above their altar, there was an icon. It was an icon of a crucifixion. And um, I found out later it was actually based on a very famous icon that hangs in a church in Florence. And what struck me about this is that it's Jesus on the cross. And then on each hand, there's a person, a female figure on one hand and a male figure on the other. And so I I did closer inspection and did a little research on it. It seemed pretty clear it was Mary, uh, the female figure, Mary, the mother of Jesus. But I needed a little help figuring out who the male figure was. And it was St. John the Evangelist. And what struck me about this, this image of Mary and John essentially hanging on the cross with Jesus, is that we typically think of the crucifixion as a solitary experience. Sure, there's people around. There are guards that are gambling for Jesus' clothing. There are scoffers nearby chiding Jesus to save himself. Two others are also condemned and are hanging on their respective crosses. And there are disciples lurking in the shadows of the scene. And even Mary and John, and now we have to do kind of a shift. Think of John, the beloved disciple. There's a Mary and John... Who are standing at the foot of the cross as Jesus gives them to one another, instructing them to be family for one another. So there are people around, but the crucifixion, at least in my mind, was an intensely solitary experience. Jesus hanging alone on the cross as he dies, but here in this icon, he's decidedly not alone. In the image of the icon, Uh, It made me recall a young woman who led worship in my Chicago church one Sunday, and she shared with us, because it had just happened the week before, shared with us that she had brought her recently deceased grandmother with her. And then when she welcomed us to worship, she welcomed all of us and all those whom we carried. So, of course, Jesus wasn't alone on the cross. He was fully human, and therefore, like each one of us, he walked the earth carrying people within him. And I began to think of all those that Jesus brought with him as he was crucified, Mary and John, all the Johns, including the beloved disciple, yes. His other beloved disciple, Mary of Magdala, yes. Peter and Thomas and all the 12, yes. The woman at the well who had thirsted for living water, yes. The blind beggar who had cried for mercy and for sight, yes. The young children who had crowded around him longing simply to be near him, yes, yes, and yes. And mysteriously we are to believe he carried with him the untold multitudes to come, including you and me, yes. Mysteriously and strangely, Yes. And this brings me to Stephen from our story in Acts this morning. Why? Well, because it's so clear from the account that we heard this morning that one of the people that Stephen carried around with him was Jesus. Echoing almost verbatim Jesus' words on the cross, as Stephen was being stoned by an angry crowd, he prayed, Lord Jesus receive my spirit. Just as Jesus prayed on his own cross. And then, once more echoing Jesus' own words at his hour of death, Stephen knelt and loudly cried, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen carried Jesus. Within him, somehow finding the strength to follow in that way of Jesus and calling for the forgiveness of his persecutors, his murderers, even in the moment of being stoned to death. So Stephen is a remarkable example to Jesus' enduring legacy of forgiveness. And starting to put all this together, I ponder who it is that I typically carry around with me. There are the obvious residents of my heart and my being. John, my most intimate life companion, is in here. Dominic and Ezekiel, my beloved nephews. Emmanuel, Liana, and Nathaniel, the beloved nephews and niece who live in Germany. Other dear friends and family who companion me in life, each of you, members of my chosen and beloved faith community, Beloveds who have died have a special place within me. I think of Grandma Raymer and my Uncle Bob and my friend Carrie, among many others. And so many others beyond those first obvious few, including a few I'd rather not disclose by virtue of how they ended up taking residence within me. I carry with me a circle, a small circle, but a circle nonetheless of those who have wronged me or betrayed me or caused some sort of lasting pain who just sort of linger within amidst the sorrow and the suffering of my life. And I know that I bring them along with me too because they creep up more often than they ought to, often when I am, for some unsavory reason, feeling particularly defeated or self-pitying. Then they show up again. Jesus, in his last moments, calling for forgiveness. I would chalk it up to a moment of transcendence in which Jesus accomplished something superhuman, Something divine and holy and holy outside of our reach. God is the one who forgives. Any good theologian knows that. So this was simply Jesus being God. Except there's Stephen, who wasn't God. There's Stephen in his last breath, calling for forgiveness. Forgiveness. And I know that, in fact, it is something human that he's doing, something sacred and holy and wholly within our reach. Stephen, one of the first few witnesses to Christ's gift of forgiveness, Recall with me the post-resurrection account recorded in John when Jesus greets the disciples and says, Peace be with you, and then greets them a second time, Peace be with you, and then breathes into them the Holy Spirit. He says, Receive the Holy Spirit. And after he does that in John, he says a most confusing thing. Jesus says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And I've struggled mightily with this because I just don't believe I have that much power (laughs) to forgive sins or retain them as I see fit. I believe mightily that God forgives, whether or not I do, whether or not I can find it in my heart or in my gut or in my toes, to forgive our president and other politicians who separate parents from their kids and their babies at our borders and who dilly-dally to reunite them or make substantive change to our cruel and inhumane policies and practices, meanwhile again announcing that they'll decrease the number of refugees that we're going to welcome and shelter within our borders. I believe God forgives them. I think. Whether or not I can find it in my heart or in my gut or in my toes to forgive the woman who nearly sabotaged my future church ministry all those years ago, one of those unsavory ones I carry within me, I believe God forgives her. I think. Whether or not I can find it in my heart or in my gut or in my toes to forgive Vladimir Putin or Benjamin Netanyahu, this list could get long, or even Dow Constantine for continuing to build the new youth jail right here in our own community. I believe that God forgives them, I think. Whether or not I can find it in my heart or in my gut or in my toes to forgive the woman on the board of our condo building who seems always to have a rude, judgy, or even condescendingly scolding things to say to just about everyone. The woman who I've objectively assessed to be arrogant. <laughs> objectively and who has so rudely interrupted my reflections on forgiveness by marching herself over to my garden where I'm trying to water and reflect on forgiveness. (laughs) I believe that God somehow forgives her too. (laughs) Now, I do believe that we are called into the hard and sometimes impossibly hard work of forgiveness. I just don't think that God sits around waiting for us to get clear before extending forgiveness. So, what's this business about our forgiving and our retaining sins having any impact on reality? Jesus said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, it's often said that we forgive for our own sake. That the call to extend forgiveness is one that opens the door to our own freedom. And like so many things that are often said, this is true. Letting someone off the hook and then removing that hook altogether, we find that as long as we had that person strung up on a hook within us, that hook was causing an awful lot of damage to us as well. Scraping up our soft places barbing our tender insides and keeping us shackled to pain and anger and resentment that's not worth its weight in paper clips. I am here to testify. So perhaps we can understand Jesus' words as describing an internal reality. When I forgive, I can experience true forgiveness and release within. And when I retain the sins of another, their sins are retained within me. And therefore, that person is also retained within me, along with their sins. I start carrying them around with me. So I end up going everywhere with them tagging along inside of me, adding weight, taking up space, blocking my own freedom. And I've definitely experienced this kind of bloatedness. Not the retaining water kind of bloatedness, but the retaining sins of others kind of bloatedness. The experience of being spiritually bloated is, to put it mildly, rather unpleasant. I wonder, though, if there's a little something more to Jesus' words. And maybe Jesus knew a little something about quantum grace. Yes, it's just as exciting as it sounds. I encountered this concept in the writing of one of my mentors, and he referenced a book that was written by a woman named Judy Canato, titled evocatively, Quantum Grace. And she writes, this is going to get like crazy sciencey for those of you who are into this sort of thing. She writes, after two energy fields encounter one another, they are forever connected. And she argues that this insight enriches our lived theological sense of being connected to everything and to the light of who God is. How does this impact our understanding of love then, specifically our understanding of loving our enemies? those whom it is difficult for us to forgive. She writes, Love means we must do what we must do with care and compassion, connected to others and to all creation, in a grace-filled energy that will not allow for indifference. And this is good nourishment for our lives of radical discipleship, of following in the way of Jesus. Regarding enemies, no indifference. Rather, grace-filled energy. Now, you likely recognize in her, her noting of this new term, quantum grace, you'll recognize the overt parallel that she's seeking to draw with quantum physics. I think of the popularly cited butterfly effect, in which the creation or absence of a hurricane on one side of the globe may depend on whether or not a butterfly flaps its wings on the other side of the globe. Small changes in one sector of a nonlinear system that lead to great changes in another part of that system. It's all strange and confusing, and I am way above my scientific pay grade here. I think almost all of us are when we flirt with quantum physics. It sounds cool and fun, but I sure don't really get it. But it's also captivating. There's something about that butterfly's wings flapping that captivates our imagination and intention. That when two energy fields encounter one another, they're forever connected. And therefore they continue to be impacted by one another, even across great distances. Strangely, mysteriously. And so like I said, it makes me wonder if Jesus knew a little something about quantum grace when he instructed his disciples regarding the forgiveness and retention of others' sins. Perhaps when we forgive in some real way here on earth, that person is forgiven, released, loosed, And conversely, when we retain the sins of others, that person may be in some real way here on earth, bound, trapped, stuck. There's certainly no way to measure any of this. It's not as simple as forgiving someone and then calling to ask if they feel any lighter or freer than they did the day before. (laughs) And then tracking the data on a graph. The only way I can even brush up against knowing the truth of this possibility is by the experience on the other end as the one being forgiven. I do know that in my own failures, even the ones that I have regretted for years, I've had the experience of eventual release. Sometimes it comes, even after a really long time of thinking it will never come. Sometimes that release feels really sudden and unexplained, and sometimes it feels gradual and steady until one day you just kind of notice it's not really there anymore. And sometimes it comes in fits and starts. It feels like a wrestling match. And whatever the case, I do have to wonder if that experience of release corresponds with someone around the country or the world, someone who I wronged letting me off the hook Forgiving me, releasing me, flapping their butterfly wings to my hurricane—it's certainly no less improbable than those fluttering butterfly wings in Japan, is it? This isn't a how-to sermon this morning, and um, this is more focused on the offering forgiveness side of the relational equation and. Obviously, there's the other side of that that we encountered in the story that Amy shared with us this morning of the asking for forgiveness. So this isn't a how-to sermon this morning, and I'm not going to outline how you might go about forgiving. But I am going to say this one thing, that forgiveness is like love in that it is not a one-time event. In other words, we have to keep choosing to forgive. Over- and over and over again, like love. Okay, I'm going to say one more thing. Forgiveness is like riding a bike and that you need to just do it. In other words, sitting around thinking about it won't get you very far. Hop on and give it a whirl. Funny that I went this week without actually practicing what I was planning to preach. Ha ha ha. I finally felt that space open up uh, for me on the drive-in this morning, and then as I was moving chairs around and doing the things that I do to prepare the space before you come on Sunday mornings. Taking inventory, at least a first inventory. There's more work to do on this but taking an inventory of some of those that I carry within me, remembering, especially the ones who have hurt me, imagining what it might have been like for them, and then speaking their name aloud, I forgive you. I'm going to have to say it again, and again, and again. But it's powerful to do it. So who do you carry within you? Who's riding around inside of you? Which of them are unnecessarily taking up prime real estate in the heart of your being when they don't actually need to be there any longer? And how might you witness to the gift of forgiveness that Jesus gave us Why do we practice forgiveness? For our own sake. Get that Barbie hook out of our own insides. For the sake of those whose sins we are retaining. And for the sake of the Christ who lives in us. Inviting us into this sacred, holy, and wholly within our reach practice of forgiveness. Blessings on you as you inventory those you carry within you and wonder what it might be like to forgive.